Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 25th, 2022, and my guest is entrepreneur and philosopher Jonathan B. Our topic for today is the thought of Rene Girard, based on a multi-part lecture series that Jonathan has done and that we will link to. Jonathan, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited for this talk. You have a background in math and computer science. Uh, you're now working on a fintech startup. How'd you get interested in Girard? And do you really know anything about him? Right. Well, I, I like to joke and say, uh, I, when people ask me what my credentials and training in Girard is, and I said I was trained in the most Girardian way uh, possible, which that, that is to say none at all. Um, Girard himself was sort of trained in history in Indiana University. And before that, he was trained as an archivist in France. Uh, but he was never formally trained in any of the uh, sort of uh, fields like anthropology, theology, or philosophy that he eventually uh, made significant contributions to. Um, but I'll, I'll give you the sort of quick story. So uh, I was brought up in, in China where you're trained very rigorously in uh, competitive math from a very early age. Um, I, I continued that interest. I was a huge uh, gamer as well. And um, that naturally tended me towards computer science. I started getting into coding when I was 14, 15. Uh, ended up getting a, a full ride to Columbia to study CS. And you know, part of the problem of, of, of going to an elite school especially someone who's interested in computer science, is that there is a sort of Zuckerberg complex and everyone's trying to drop out as fast as possible to raise some money. And so I did a pretty good job. I dropped out my, my freshman spring, raised a small friends and family, startup ended up crashing and burning. And uh, you know, the, the defeat was so total and internal that I was really forced to introspect. I mean, coming from an engineering and mathematical background, I wanted to sort of debug myself in the same way that I was taught to debug uh, applications. And that, you know, philosophy was the API document of the human soul, if you will. And so that's how I got into philosophy. I was really interested in, in, in really two strands of, of theorists. Um, one is, is, is uh, Buddhism. Uh, maybe we'll bucket that. Maybe we'll get to that today. Um, the other strand is a group of continental social theorists called the, uh, or, or what my professors like to call the recognition theorists. And there's really three uh, traditions here. One tradition is the Scottish moral tradition with, with Human Smith. One tradition is the German tradition, uh, most notably Hegel, and uh, obviously the French tradition with Rousseau, Sartre, and I include Girard in there as well. And I think what's unique about all of these uh, theorists is that they see humans as fundamentally social creatures, not as individuals um, who can reason by themselves, who can, who can form desires in, in, in a vacuum, so to speak, but people who are uh, helplessly penetrated at all times by, by subjects uh, around them. Or, or mediated through history or perhaps something like literature. And that was the essence of my problem. I think the essence of a lot of the problem of people who get into these elite colleges, which is you're, you're very prestige seeking. Uh, and fundamentally, that's, you know, what one easy way to sum up the problem there is that yourself exists inter externally, right? And so there's a big disjoint between what, what you really want to do versus the expectations you, you feel pulled uh, very much too. And so uh, these thinkers, and Gerard in particular, 
was my way to sort of climb out of that hole, so to speak. Recent episode with um, Agnes Callery that has not aired yet, so you have not heard of Jonathan, but she starts off by saying that we start off pretty ignorant of the world. Uh, we don't no one hands us a manual. And the first thing we do is we copy. We smile when our parents smile as, as a newborn, when, a few months into our lives. We stick out our tongue when they stick out their tongue. And um, right. copying is clearly an important part of learning. It's a form of practice. Yes. Uh, but right. Gerard kind of took it a little further than that. So what is, what is mimetic theory? And uh, that Gerard postulated is the, um, I would say, the consequence of our social nature. Yeah, so I think the core Girardian, Girardian insight in the psychological realm is that there's really two species or, or two kinds of human desire. One he called physical desire, and the other he called metaphysical desire. Physical desire is a desire for utility, what objects can provide us in and of themselves. Metaphysical desire is a desire for identity, what the objects say about us. And let me give you a few quick examples. Um, I can desire to eat. I can go downstairs and at a ramen place. It's not very prestigious. And that's just for physical desire. It's just yummy. But I can also go you know, maybe further down to Columbus Circle and John George, which is, a, I think, a Michelin star r- restaurant. And, and there, right, there is a great deal of physical desire. They make great food but clearly not so much better than the grid ramen place to justify that you know, 10x, 30x price tag increase. And so there's clearly something different going on there. And, and Gerard would say that's metaphysical desire. We like uh, the type of self-conception we bolster when we were served in such a delicate manner. And this uh, exists in jobs, right? I can uh, go to work because it's prestigious, or I can do a job because I, I enjoy it. And Gerard thinks that this splitting of desire uh, uh, exists uh, across the spectrum. And when we desire to be, Gerard thinks what we really desire is a form of persistence, right? We want our names to, names to last. We desire a form of self-sufficiency or power, almost like a Nietzschean will to power. You can interpret it that way. And we desire a social reality. We desire recognition and fame, and we desire to be lauded by the social groups that we're in. And however, these ideals are super abstract. So how does one fulfill them? Gerard's answer is that we make associations with objects by choosing models whom we already think have this heightened being. This could be a very distant model, like uh, Amadi of Gaul was for Don Quixote, perhaps, through literature. It could be a very proximate and seemingly innocuous model, like a very uh, maybe well-thought-of co-worker near us. And Gerard's point is that our, our fundamental desires, our, our moral paradigms, if you will, are fundamentally anchored by, by these models and the objects and values associated with them. Now, what seems as an innocuous suggestion, I, 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 I really think to be one of the greatest attacks mounted against uh, the foundations of modern social theory, because it's fundamentally giving a completely different answer to the question where normative certainty is derived from. And I think modernity generally has two answers to this question. Well, first, you know, the, the, the distinction I'm using is a, is a perennial one that between normative and descriptive, right? So descriptive is the, the color of that chair, the length of this table, how many fingers I have. And these are things that philosophers think we, we usually independently have access to by, by our own investigations. But when you, call, when, you, when you go to the normative side, what is the beautiful? What is the good? What type of sexual familial relations are uh, laudable and what are despicable? That 
seems to be a different fundamentally type of object than the length of tables and chairs, or at least philosophers have commonly sought those. And I think modernity really has two answers to the question. Where does normative certainty, where does, how do we access normative truth? And I think one is offered by the Enlightenment, and the answer there is reason, right? And, and uh, our core institution of free speech is grounded upon this by Mill, that through our investigations, each of us as individuals filtering through our own reason can come to our own understanding. And another is romanticism, right? And that's the, the primacy of the individual's sort of intuition, so to speak. And a lot of our politics of self-expression is based on this, right? Why, why do we allow uh, or why do we permit and expand what type of sexual and familiar relations are acceptable? Well, it's because people themselves know their true gender identity. However, Gerard's answer is to say no to both of these strands of thinking, to reason or personal intuition. To reason, he says, reason is so often a lawyer and spokesperson for normative values that we've actually ingested tribalistically through our social means. And to the romantics, he says, we do not always desire strongly authentic desires. You know, we do desire strongly to go to a prestigious school, to get the right job, to live in the right postal code. So the strength of your desire clearly can't indicate its authenticity and whether it's truly yours. And I'll pause there, but but uh, hopefully I gave you a lay of the land of why, why Gerard is interesting. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. I, I think um, Gerard is the kind of thinker, and, and I, I confess to listeners, I've never read Gerard. I've only watched your first part of your seven-part lecture series. I found it fascinating. I've heard of Gerard, um, but he's the kind of thinker that when I was younger, I would say, yeah, it's a bunch of nonsense. He doesn't know what he's talking about. It's a bunch of grand theories. But as I've gotten older, I, I find them uh, much more provocative. And certainly, longtime listeners of yeah. Econ Talk will note that Adam Smith, who said man naturally desires not only to be uh, loved, but to be lovely. That is, we want right. respect and we want honor and we want praise from the people around us. And we want to gain it authentically, which is a little bit of not so as Gerardian as the first part. But this idea that that we are driven by those around us and what they respect. Uh, one of the lessons of that, of course, for me is that since I think we are prone to that, uh, we should choose carefully who we hang out with because we are going to be course, influenced by them. And many people yeah. have observed that uh, for, for, for millennia. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a well understood, uh, I think, piece of, piece of wisdom. But what's powerful about this relative to more mainstream modern economics is that modern economics struggles to deal with these issues of social interaction. Uh, in modern economics, human beings are autonomous and alone. They have their own preferences. Right. These preferences are given from the outside, meaning exogenously yep. in the formal terms. And I spend my life trying to make myself happy and that and to rack up utility. And that's the physical util physical desire that that you talk about with Gerard. As I've gotten older, I realize, but but that metaphysical desire, the desire to be perceived a certain way, which is the way I understand Gerard, and what that does for my sense of identity in a circle of people who have their own perceptions of me and and of what's important. Uh, that's also very, very hard yeah. to resist. And one thing I right. have to say, I cheated on a little bit in my Adam Smith book is I mm -hmm. did not want to talk about this fundamental issue that you raise in, in your description and discussion, which is authenticity. Uh, 
Because right. in theory, if Smith is right, if I and and I don't know how much he writes about this explicitly, but if Smith is right and what drives us is how we're perceived, that we want to be seen, that we want to matter, what is authenticity in that world? If we're not right, careful, right. and I write about this, but I don't know how much of it was me versus Smith. That's the cheating part. If, if that's true, if I recognize that I'm a social being, where's the real me? You know, where's my self? How do I integrate my physical desire, my so-called preferences in the economic jargon, with my recognition that I'm part of a larger circle of social forces, a desire to be loved, a desire to be praised, a desire to be respected, a desire to matter, a desire to have dignity. Uh, these are all, um, if I'm not careful, I just end up doing what other people think I should, and where's the real me? And so, uh, Gerard, I'm sure I know you have thought a lot about that, so talk about that. Yeah, well, there's so many things that we could talk about. Eventually, I want to get into a little intellectual history uh, to, to, to discuss how we came to this place where, you know, people, you as well as I started off initially thinking we're just rational utility maximizing creature. That's, that's all we should do. So eventually, I want to get to that part. But there's, there's, a, there's a few threads yeah. that I want to close out first. W one I'll say is, is Smith. And, and um, you know, as I mentioned in my little uh, prolegomena of my intellectual interest, Smith is part of that Scottish moral tradition, which I find extremely fascinating. And uh, I believe Smith says, you know, we want to be loved, we want to be lovable, we want to be sympathized with and sympathizable. Um, and I actually think Smith isn't that far off from this Gerardian intuition. No, not at all. Because he has this idea of the impartial spectator. Correct. Right? And, and one question I always had reading Smith is just, how impartial is this really spectator? Um, because he, as Smith seems to suggest that this is a universal, uh, eternal spectator that judges upon these just laws of human nature that are unmoving. Um, but I, I think, and, and what Gerard would say, and, and how you get from Smith to Gerard is a slight tweak, which is that instead of these eternal uh, uh, sort of spectator, almost a god inside your brain, so to speak, um, what you get are, are actually quite, quite partial spectators. You get spectators uh, through your cultural upbringing in your environment that grounds your fundamental uh, key, key moral values. So there's a close proximity, really close proximity between Smith, between Gerard, and also I would argue uh, the Germans, Hegel, and the rest of the, the French, Rousseau and Sartre as well. Well, what's powerful about thinking about Gerard in the Smithian context for me and you might say, no, that's totally weird. And not what, not, no, that's not what I had in mind at all. What's weird for me is that when Smith talks about impartial, he means not me. He means right, not on my right. side. And so, therefore, mm. that spectator is impartial. It, it's, not, it's not my wife. Right, it's right, not my best right, friend. Yeah. It's a, a person of my— Objective. Well, what'd you say? Uh, I said objective, exactly. like a judge. Exactly. Right. It's someone from my circle who's respected like, who is um, going to look at me with some objectivity. But what you're pointing out is that, in a sense, the Girardian impartial spectator doesn't exist. Because the Girardian impartial spectator, as I understood you before, is a part of this culture that you and I inhabit. So – Okay, David Hume really likes Adam Smith. They're old friends. And so he's not, maybe he's not who Smith has on his shoulder watching over. Although Smith had so much respect for Hume that it's very possible he was his, in, in, a, in some sense his impartial spectator. But pick someone else, uh, someone from his circle, his coterie of, of buddies. 
that person has the same values as that culture, which are not necessarily Smith. Smith might aspire to that. Smith might want the approval of that group that he's immersed himself around in, right? And so that group is not impartial. That group has a whole bunch of prejudices and a whole bunch of values. Right. And, and Smith is, is, of course, doing his best. I feel terrible saying this about Adam Smith. He's doing his best right. to try to appease them and to get their approval. And, and I think Smith would find that offensive which is, I think, the Smith I represented in, in my book. But you're suggesting, I think Gerard would suggest that oh, we can think all he wants about how he's not going to give in to all what they want. And he has his own views. He's he's going to be drawn to them like 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 a moth to a to a light bulb, and he's he's going to give in. He's not. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I'll, I'll mention one more point on this point, and then we should move on to authenticity and eventually the intellectual history. There's, there's so much to talk about. Uh, there are actually, if we take what I like about this impartial spectator view, that we sort of simulate, if you will, uh, sort of a, a person, a, norm, a normative judge in, in the back of our heads, is that there is potentially a biological basis for this in the 20th century discovery of mirror neurons. Right. And these are neurons that, that both fire when you do an action or when you observe a similar action uh, be, be being done. It's the same sort of neuron pa- pattern firing. So there's some, it lends some credence to the idea that there is a, a biological basis between uh, observing, simulating versus actually do, do, doing it yourself. But th- that's the final point I'll say on this because uh, I want to get to your point on authenticity. Yeah. Um, I'm actually very confused because th- this is the big question for the Gerardian, right? What is good health? Like what, what does it mean to be healthy? Um, and Gerard, uh, as I said in my lecture series, is just very disappointing in his lack of norm, uh, positive prescriptions. Uh, in fact, I compared Gerard to my Virgil in the sense that he was ab- able to rescue me through hell. He was able to show me how to purge more milder forms of perversion. But just as Virgil couldn't take Dante all the way to heaven, neither could Gerard. Gerard kind of just retreats. In fact, the model that he will give at, at the end of his life and career is Holt Berlin, which 19th century con- contemporary of Clausewitz and Napoleon and, and Hegel, who retreated into a tower, right? So, so that's the, the French. And Rousseau also had this retreatist uh, intuition. So maybe it's a French thing. But the, the, um, so, so that, that, this, this is all to say that what I'm about to share with you is mostly my own creative interpretations on top of Gerard. I think there's general two solutions. Once you've identified there's a metaphysical and there's a physical design. One way, and I think this is what Gerard leans to, is to say this metaphysical this is the Buddhist as well as the, the, the Gerardian way, is to say this metaphysical desire, this desire for being, it's completely uh, 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 perverse. It's always perverse, whether from Gerard's perspective, because it's essentially a desire to be God, right? This is why it's satanic. You're designing persistence. You're designing power. You're designing reality. If you push those far enough, those are the metaphysical qualities of the, of the Judeo-Christian God. So Gerard actually sees metaphysical desire as the original sin, as the satanic drive to rival God in his metaphysical splendor. So, so and, and the Buddhists, right, uh, I, I, we don't have to go into that, but long story short, uh, these metaphysical qualities are, are, are not possible in the world, right? Emptiness is what permeates the world. So this is a fundamentally wrong sort of desire. So for the Christians and Buddhists, the way to good health is to completely get rid of metaphysical desire to be only concerned by the object, physical desire. There's another, however, strand of thinking, and probably most popular amongst the Germans and Hegel, is to say there is actually a healthy way, the Germans and and, and Plato, actually, which we'll talk about, 
there actually is a healthy way to exist in society. And the, and, and the way, long story short, to do so is for your metaphysical and your physical desires to align. That is to say, if you really like to do philosophy, don't hang out with a bunch of people who are industrialists. Hang out with a bunch of philosophers so that the uh, sort of somewhat partial spectator, as we've discussed, mm-hmm. will naturally align with your normative values, with your physical desires, and, and thus you will receive rec- recognition and, and a form of reality. So these are two fundamental answers, and I really don't know well, which one is the, is the right one. The problem one. with the second one, which is one I've proposed in many different aspects of, of life, that, you know, I talk about the fact that uh, you have certain wants, but you also can have wants about your wants, and you right. can aspire. Uh, you can try to uh, want to be a philosopher rather than an industrialist, and, and therefore pick the industrialists. I mean, pick the philosophers. The problem with that, of course, is it implies that you have control over your desire to have wants about your wants, and I think there's some sort of infinite regress there for Gerard, I suspect, where you're kind of fooling yourself into thinking that's something higher. It's for whatever reason, you've fallen in with the philosophers, you want their approval, they're the people you socialize with, they're your partial spectators already. It's very hard to wrench yourself out of whatever your social uh, environment is uh, and and do something different. You know, the Jewish version of this, uh, I think it's in... uh, I think it's in the Talmud. It says, uh, in, a, in a place where there mm-hmm. are no men, be a man. And uh, old-fashioned language, but what it means is, you know, in a place where people have no uh, values and, and are not uh, high quality, stand against them. Don't, don't, don't be sucked in. And, and it's that outside set of values you bring to the table in theory that insulates you from that uh, loss of authenticity of trying to get, earn the approval of of uh, dishonorable people, right? That that I think is what Smith would would argue. It's what I think it's part of the Jewish tradition. It may be part of the Christian tradition, but I think I assume Gerard would say you're just fooling yourself. You can't do that. You're stuck with this. Real authenticity that, 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 is is an illusion, and and I should just add, yeah. you know, at the end of your uh, lecture series of part one, you you point out that. This is dangerous stuff. This can be hard to to come away uh, normal after you've been exposed to it. And it, I, I feel I can see I can sense it a little bit. It's hard to maintain your sense of authenticity. It's right. better to be aware of of your susceptibility to social pressure, but eventually, if you're not careful, you start to think it's not even possible, and you just there's there's yeah, really no road. But, but I think. I think that's the mark of a, maybe to take the conversation a bit more meta, of, of a good philosopher, right? To, to really challenge you so much that you think the rug is being pulled underneath your feet. Yeah. And that's what reading Gerard, um, coming from this sort of modern, rational, utility-maximizing perspective, really felt like. And, you know, w- when I look for, loss, for philosophers, I, I look for the exact opposite of what safe spaces are, right? I, I look for the, uh, the, the ones who are sort of challenging me uh, the most. So maybe that's, that's the mark of a uh, of someone worth engaging. But let me just make a, a quick comment, I think, on this authenticity point. I think Gerard is forced to say, and I think the scholarly community is actually divided on this, so you're, I think your intuition, many you'll, you'll find many sympathetic Gerardians. But I think Gerard is forced to say, of course we have a, a physical desire. Like, of course we aren't just after objects for what they say about us. That's completely ridiculous, right? However, he, he would say that every act of desiring probably has a social desire, a metaphysical desire involved in it. 
But that's not to say all desire is metaphysical desire, right? To say all desire has metaphysical desire is not to say all desire is metaphysical desire. And there's a big distinction. I mean, clearly, I think when we, there are states, and I'll further, I'll grant, there are states where we're so caught up in a metaphysical frenzy that we cannot investigate what our true desires are. And by the way, there's two ways to get caught up in a metaphysical frenzy. One is this sort of positive way of conforming to a group, but then there's a negative way. That's out of resentment. Yeah, talk about right? that. I can choose- That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, but maybe, maybe let me just finish the authenticity point, right, right, tie a little neat bow on it, and then we'll talk about that. Um, Gerard would say, or my reading of, of Gerard suggests that we do have a physical desire that once we calm down our metaphysical desire, we are able to access it. That is, even if I'm throw in, thrown in, so to speak, with a group of industrialists, but I really like, say, philosophy, if, I, if I'm able to calm myself, my medical frenzy down through various means and perhaps by, by good luck, I will be able to discern that, if not the exact degree to which I like philosophy, that, that I do prefer it over industry. And let me give you an example, actually. I have a friend, and uh, he's in a very similar position that I just, just suggested. He's doing very well in his career, he, like a superstar in, in, in industry. Uh, and he's getting no recognition, no social glory whatsoever in philosophy. Yet every single day, he loves doing philosophy and he loathes industry, right? So if the desire is philosophy, industry, but you know that the desire for industry is already being pushed up and philosophy is already being pushed down by the lack of, of the social and the surplus of the social, if you, if, if you can't tell what the sort of real absolute amounts are, you know that their real weighting is even greater, right? So uh, my reading is that you, you still can access your, your physical or authentic desire if you calm yourself down. And I think it's a bit ludicrous to suggest that no one can. Um, but let me get to this, this negative mimesis part, because this is just as, as, as frequent and possibly even more interesting than the positive, which is this, right? Think about the logic that I just described. The, desire, the logic of metaphysical desire is to secure an object that is associated with a model who we consider to have a heightened degree of being. Now, the mere inverse of that logic is this. We want to be distant from objects associated with models that have a deficiency of being, right? In high school, we both want to wear the brands that the cool kids are wearing. And we also want to make sure we never wear the brands, never go to the the shopping malls and the places that the the social outcasts are Correct. And so metaphysical desire really works both ways here. And what the negative way is called is Nietzsche's resentment. And let me, let me give you an example. So I have an acquaintance in college who I first met as a freshman, and uh, he was an uh, economic progressive, very, very interested in distributive justice. And I thought, what a great guy, right? Every time I saw, saw him, he's talked very passionately about helping the poor. And I thought, you know, what, what a good upstanding moral character. And as, he got, as I got to know him more, he confessed to me that his progressive economic leanings were not due to a universal love of the poor, but a localized hatred of the rich. Ah. <laughs> because he had grown up as middle class in a upper middle class uh, 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 environment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and wealth was that thing that, was made, that made him always feel small. And so rejecting wealth and rejecting the wealthy was for him a moral weapon to get back fundamentally at his richer peers. And you know what that, that friend is doing right now? He's an investment banker because fundamentally he never had a problem with money. The only reason he claimed to dislike it and people who had it so much was because he wanted it so much. And uh, here's the other interesting thing. 
this, the, continuing on Gerard's attack of romanticism, you know, the, the sort of naive and simplistic picture, because we're short on time, of romanticism is that we have this authentic core. And then we have these layers of, you know, social restrictions labeled on it. And all we have to do to be authentic is to leave the group, right? To peel back these social layers. So when I asked my friend, well, isn't that crazy? You just told me that you, you didn't really believe in prog progressive economics for itself. You, you, you did it out of a sort of social conformity. And his answer was, how was I conforming? All of my peers were economic conservatives. I was the only economic progressive. And this is the lie, I think, of romanticism, is that it confuses difference for autonomy. It confuses distance for authenticity. I think there's a narrative in modernity that to be different from the group means to be authentic. And I'll leave you with sort of one last image here that I think is quite striking. So Marlon Brando, a famous uh, actor, I think in the 40s, was, uh, was in a movie called The Wild Ones. Yep. And he, he's dressed in this really cool uh, leather jacket. He's clearly like this rebellious, sort of like late 20th century figure. And then a girl goes up to a bar and she asks, what are you rebelling against? And he says, with a smug grin on his face, what do you got? <laughs> right? he, he, do, he doesn't stand doesn't for anything. Yeah, he doesn't care. Whatever you give in front of him, he's going to rebel against. And I, and I think a, a, a sin is too strong as a word, but I'll use it. A sin of modernity is to rebel with no less rigidity to tradition as the Confucians of old, or maybe the Christians of old, conformed just simply for the sake of conformity to, to, to tradition. And so that, that is the negative phase of mimesis. Yeah, tell, tell the... Uh... And again, we haven't said this, but mimesis is just a fancy word for imitation. Uh, right. And we're talking about people who imitate those around them. Uh, not, it's complicated. I, some of it is because they want to be loved. That's the sort of Smithian, the dark side of the Smithian vision. But I think, I think Gerard's view is simply that that's the way we're made. We're drawn to these people who have this, as you say, this elevated level of being or a strong, powerful identity. And we have this urge, we're drawn like, again, like a moth or magnet to, to, to imitate them. Not to say I want to construct their life per se or go to school where right. they went, learn what they did, achieve yeah, what they yeah, did. Yeah. I want to look like them, <laughs> which is, which is right, the, in a way, right. many ways, the worst kind of conformity. But talk about the, uh, the dinner party where the, where the person's wearing the, the, the $5 t-shirt. Cause I think that's a nice right. example of the, <laughs> right. the anti-conformity is just really the same kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, before I go there, if I can elaborate on one point we're making sure. on imitation is that I think, uh, I don't think you're saying this, but I'm just clarifying for our, our audience. I, I don't think, I think it's a bit too simplistic to, to, to say Gerard is, you know, about imitation, because I think what it lends people to think is, you know, I see man walking across the street, I model his, you know, every, every, every endeavor, and, and I walk across the street, you know, I see man kissing this girl, I, I also kiss this girl. And it's not that type of imitation that Gerard is interested in. Gerard is fundamentally interested in imitation or negative imitation of values. Does that make sense? Yeah, go ahead. So, so when I see a man date a, a certain girl, what I imitate is certain qualities of that woman who are highlighted, that are implanted in me. For example, slimness, right? Slimness was, is not always a, a cultural uh, ideal of beauty. It's too simplistic for Gerard to think, you know, that 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 guy just just I have to imitate his exact actions. This is fundamentally an imitation or negative imitation of values, and that's why I, I drew that normative versus descriptive distinction. So so it covers a, a much uh, it covers. 
reactions that, that don't seem to be imitative, uh, prima facie. Now, let me tell that dinner story because I think it's a nice segue here. Um, I think the story is, uh, you know, people in tech, uh, are, they appear to be quite independent. And the, you know, when, when you're at these uh, fancy d- dinner parties, the finance people, they're all, all in, you know, $5, $500 suits. And the tech guy would show up in a $5 t-shirt. Now, because of this modern conception of difference equaling autonomy, dif- distance equaling authenticity, we think, oh, that tech guy, he's so authentic, right? Zuckerberg is a great example here. But my, my reading of that is that that's just simply a negative invitation because, or, or it's playing the same game, but at an accelerated means. Because in some sense, showing up to a fancy dinner party where everyone is dressed up in $500 suits and a $5 t-shirt is much more of a power move than showing up to that same dinner party with a, even a $5,000 suit. Because what it's saying is that I take your core value and expensive clothes and fashionable dress, and I treat your value as nothing. And thereby showing that I am more superior to you, right? If you watch Game of Thrones, do you watch Game of Thrones? No, no uh, or- it, I'm the last person who hasn't seen it. <laughs> right, okay, I've never seen it, and I've never read Lord of the Rings. I didn't like The Hobbit, so around the, the pic- 14 the years old, paint- it was over for right. me. <laughs> the, the picture I'll paint, I think, is, will still be relatable. In Game of Thrones, there's these high sex, and they're supposed to be, I, I think, a, a parallel to, to, to the Catholics or something, or, or, or like early monks. And they're dressed in robe, like really poor robes, and they're sweeping the, the citadel. But you can tell there's a sort of moral arrogance, and they actually treat their robes compared to the king's jewelry as a sign of superiority yeah. and, and victory, right? So, so that is all this sort of logic of, of negative mimesis. And what Nietzsche fundamentally captures in the first essay in the genealogy of morals of, of the resentment. So let, let's go back to being for a minute because I'm I write about that in my book Wild Problems and my sense of self and how important that is and how it often trumps uh, and dominates narrow utilitarian day to day happiness. That's that's one yeah. of my claims in the book that when we make. Right. Big life decisions, whether to have children, whether to marry, who to marry. Right. Yeah. We don't just look at whether we're going to be happy or not. We look at how we're going to feel about ourselves as human beings. What, what right. Gerard's adding is that, yeah, and you get those ideas from somebody else usually, uh, or as right. you say, an right. anti-idea. And uh, I, find that, I find that deeply troubling, uh, but I have to confront it as a possible reality. I love this idea that my essence – my sense of self, my being, who I am. This is something I craft through my decisions. That's the central claim of my book. My book is Wild Problems, A Guide to the Decisions That Define Us. And these big decisions define who we are. Right. And so when we, yeah. when we make those decisions, we shouldn't just look at the narrow utilitarian calculus. We should consider how it's going to affect how we see ourselves and who we actually are, our essence. Totally, yeah. Um, but I think George's kind of a little bit skeptical about that as a, as a path of authenticity. Am I right? Well, I, I would say he, he would say bravo, bravo or us. Oh, you, you definitely nice. got the first, for, the, the first part right, at the very least, that when we're making decisions primarily, even though we fooled ourselves into thinking that they're just after objects, just after utility, um, a, a large degree of the consequences of those decisions is how it affects our being, our, our sort of self-conception, our identity. Yeah. 
where he might disagree with you, and I, and I think you, you've landed on this point already, is how those decisions affect our being is not some eternal uh, a rule book of human nature. You know, we were just handed this instruction manual that I, I of all people as an engineer would like to find, you know, eat three chickens <laughs> means good, you know, eat, kill two cows means bad. Um, however, our sense of being is fundamentally shaped and determined by the cultures we're in and the models that we're exposed to. I mean, just take, take something as uh, uh, having multiple wives, right? In, in many social milieus, that would be the mark of great respect, right? In, in, in Chinese antiquity, you know, only only the aristocrats to take take multiple wives, and and the emperors has the most. But in today's society, right, having having mistresses or having multiple husbands is seen as very odd. Yeah. Um, and the same thing, as I mentioned already, with body image, right? Slimness right now is all the rage. But in the Tang Dynasty in China, it was um, it was having a more well-rounded figure, so to speak, those were the, that indicated people's wealth. Those were the good old days. <laughs> right, exactly. I would have been happier. There. I wish you. I, <laughs> me too. Me too. I would have a high, high, heightened sense of being. Yeah. But Russ, if it's okay with you, can can I share with our our listeners this sort of intellectual history yeah, sure. about how about how I, I think uh, we got here uh, uh, and how we've really lost right this this idea of humans as social animals. And to the extent where an economist like you has to learn that it doesn't start, you'd think that you should start from that position, right? Um, and the intellectual history, I'm going to borrow from one of my professors that I studied under, Axel Honneth, who himself is a recognition theorist. So part of this is going to be borrowed, but it really starts with Plato, as I imagine most intellectual histories begin. You know, Plato, as our listeners probably know, had a tripartite conception of the human soul. There was appetite, there was reason, and there was spirit. And each of these had a means and had an ends. The means of appetite might be instinct. The ends of appetite are the same ends that we share with animals. Self-preservation, your sex, right? Recreation, having a a roof over our heads. And there's also a means of reason, right? That's just, well, reason itself, right? Our ability to have discussions like like this. But funnily enough, there's actually an ends of reason too. And that's contemplative joy. Uh, and this is the thing that's going to be obscured. There is a means of spirit, and maybe that's mimesis or imitation, Plato's a bit unclear, but there's also an ends of spirit. And that end of spirit is all these social goods that we've discussed, right? Thumos, uh, glory or recognition, social belonging. And this intellectual history really sees authors of antiquity, um, obviously uh, Aristotle, who continued this, right? Zuan Politicon, humans are social political creatures, uh, that continued all the way to the Christian uh, natural law theorists, who saw a fundamental end, a fundamental end, not, not just an instrumental means of human, uh, the, of the good human life, to be uh, participation in the community itself, okay? So the, particip- the social participation was the end, or was one of the most important ends. Now, uh, my professor sees the radical break between the social history in Machiavelli, who saw people as fundamentally egocentric, and most importantly for him, social participation for the ruler was not the end in itself. It was not the joy to be seeked. It was merely an instrumental means for appetite, for the ends of appetite, for self-preservation. Does that make sense? Do you see how the ends of spirit have been obscured? For Machiavelli, participating in the right type of polity was not an end in itself. It was merely the social 
means was merely a way to serve appetite for your self-preservation, for gold, for utility. And if Machiavelli was the first person to inject this into uh, the Western philosophical uh, tradition in a significant way, then Hobbes, so this intellectual history claims, would be the one who codified it as the ground of political theory. Hobbes, of course, had this famous idea, a thought experiment of uh, him trying to justify, you know, the state and trying to articulate what the state's responsibilities as well as rights were. And he came to view this idea of a battle of all against all, right? That, that's the, for, for Hobbes, the default state is, is a sort of antagonistic social uh, 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 sort of uh, all-out warfare where people are after each other. And, and you and I's appetite are not preserved. You and I are, are worried about our food, our self-preservation. So for Hobbes, the legitimacy of the state, the social contract by which people enter into was fundamentally to protect appetite, to protect people's self-preservation. And that's why in Hobbes, you only see a very negative and limited sense of freedom, right? Simply a sort of physical freedom. You're not being chained to the wall. It's not this Hegelian freedom that's super positive and has all these requirements. And to this genealogy, or to this sorry, intellectual history, I want to add one more thinker, um, and that's Smith. Now, I think it would be totally wrong to level to, to say, you know, Smith didn't have the social conception in view, theory of moral sentiments. He did have this deeply social conception in view. However, as you well know, in his economic theory, when he tries to explain how we came to this magnificent political economic development of the free market, his answer is our propensity to, to, to barter and trade and exchange. It is not from the benevolence of the butcher that we expect our daily meal, but the concern for his own self-interest. So at least in important parts of the economy, Smith himself simply considers it as a way of reason to get the ends of appetite. So it's through this, I think, influential lineage of thinkers that we've completely ejected this idea of, of spirit, this platonic third part of the soul, we no longer see participation in the polity as an end in itself. We merely see our social aspect as a way to serve our appetite. And so we become reduced to these rational, utility-maximizing creatures without a consideration of, of spirit at all. And... and I'll pause there, but, 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 but that is how, how, how I think we got here. I'll also make one more comment, maybe, that I think out of the of sort of physics envy, economics wanted to be, uh, you know, uh, economics want, want to run on the rails of math, so to speak. And the easiest way to do that is to model people as rational utility uh, maximizing creatures. Because when you inject the social dimension, you fundamentally cannot use quantity anymore as the fundamental language. You have to use quality. Right. You have to describe what, what things are being traded and things like that. But I'll pause there. Well, i doing my job for me. I appreciate that. I was going to say that. I was going to say maybe a little differently, but that, uh, let me try to elaborate on that because I think that, that's please, also please, important. Yes. Um, Smith certainly saw people embedded in, in their social, yes. their intimate social circles uh, of family and friends. Uh, the community people they interacted with on a regular – that a person interacts with on a regular basis. Uh, I don't think he had any romance about um, the world. I know he didn't. Uh, being part of the, say, the world community. Uh, he, he – but he certainly wasn't you know, a modern economist with anatomistic, individualistic um, 
Max, but in economics, he was right. Well, in economics, uh, let me say bar- the barter truck and exchange. Well, the truck barter and exchange is is people are individuals. They do act individually. Yeah, I, I, I yes. wouldn't say in his economics. I would say it a little differently. I would say it in his right. in his view of our commercial dealings. We look out for ourselves, but yes. you know if you pressed him. And he's not here to press. But if you pressed him, I think, and maybe it's in there and I just don't remember it, but uh, let, let's talk about what what might be called sharp dealing, driving a hard bargain, being maybe even a little bit not dishonest per se, but maybe not revealing everything uh, right, in, right. A, in a commercial negotiation. Um, I think Smith would recognize that if you did that, and it became revealed later that you were not honorable and you hit something, you would pay a cost for it. You would pay a price for it and you would not want to pay that price. That price would not be monetary. It's not just you wouldn't get a good deal later on. It would be that you would right. lose the respect. Social you'd lose the respect yes, to your friends. Yes. Now, I see. I, th- that's my first claim about Smith. We can come back and talk about it some more later. But, but I think this mathematical point you're making is quite important. Uh, starting around 1948, uh, with Foundations of Economic Analysis and Paul Samuelson, economists longed to embed their work in physics-like mathematical structures that appeared to be, I don't think they are, but appear to be more rigorous than a, say, uh, narrative-based, uh, word-based structure of description of human behavior. And you can embed these social forces. Famously, mm. Gary Becker got a Nobel Prize for it, his paper, The Theory of Social Interactions, his book, A Treatise on the Family. These were all attempts, actually, to take Smith and make them, Smith, more rigorous. I, I was fortunate to see a, uh, to be at a conference that that honored Gary uh, and his work toward the end of his career. And I asked him after that, uh, after his presentation, where he had responded to a bunch of different people, I said, or maybe somebody else asked him. I can't remember if I asked him or somebody mm. else. But they asked him, which economist most influenced you? And his answer was Adam Smith. I think mm. the second might have been Alfred Marshall, um, it, which was shocking. It was shocking to can, me. Can you elaborate a bit to, to me as well as yeah. perhaps some of our audience yeah. who so, isn't familiar with his yeah, work? So, so Gary Becker was, was a... What, what's fun about Becker is that he was a he took the idea of utility maximization under constraints which is the modern mm. economist toolkit for trying to understand human choices that is we like lots of stuff we have preferences we don't have enough money or time to fulfill those preferences fully so we have to choose we have to deal with trade-offs so that's right. the standard economist model of life. It's about racking up utility, you know, being happy versus being sad. And there's a lot to life that is just very much about those things. That's the physical desire that we talk, talked about earlier. But Becker took that toolkit and applied it everywhere. He applied it to marriage. He applied it to, to uh, how, much, how many resources you gave to different children. He had a he had an economic theory of suicide, and anytime you had the word economic theory, like uh, his he, oh the my. economics of crime and punishment, one of his most famous articles, one of the most influential and insightful articles, it's it's basically says criminals are rational like everybody else. 
they trade off expected gain from theft versus expected loss from punishment. And applied mechanically, that's a really sterile theory in his hands. He was a very, very thoughtful practitioner of of the economic toolkit. But my point, the reason I brought up Becker and the reason I brought up Smith, for Gary Mm -hmm. Becker, who is the most, in many ways, a super modern economist of his era, which is... You know, his mm-hmm. glory, his best work was between 1960 and, say, 2000, 1960 to 1990. For him to say that an economist who wrote in 1776, no economist, no Nobel laureate of the 20th century really? would say that really? Adam wow. Smith was their biggest intellectual influence, except Gary Becker. And I don't know if it is Nobel laureate, wow. if it is Nobel Prize speech, whether he references it, but it's shocking you know, they would reference some, Why, why, why? Because in, nobody in, reads in, Smith. in political theory... Nobody reads Smith. Really? Nobody reads Smith. Oh, my goodness. He's dead. Oh, my goodness. Nobody's interested in Smith. He's been subsumed. It's like saying it would be like a modern string theorist in physics when asked, who is your biggest influence? Well, Isaac Newton. I've tried to bring his work into mind. And, and you'd say like, oh, my gosh, why? He's... Or go back earlier. I don't know who was there. Who would you say? Galileo? Right, right, I don't right, know. Right. Uh, Copernicus? Right. Pythagoras. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Right. Well, well, those are pretty good. Those are, anyway. Um, so for and so the question was, when, when Becker said that, I actually thought he was joking. I thought he was joking. I thought it was like, oh, Adam Smith. <laughs> what he meant was, he didn't mean the wealth of nations. He meant the theory right, of moral silence. Right. He meant right. my career yes. was devoted Yes. To taking the insights of Smith and the theory of moral sentiments that we care about. And, you know, my classmates and I used to joke about this. We care about opprobrium. That's a very Smithian word. It means disapproval. <laughs> but, but Becker liked to quote Smith, opprobrium. Right. And we want, we want, um, we want the approval of the people around us who we respect and, and we don't want the disapproval of people that, right. that we respect. And Smith, excuse me, Becker, tried to bring that insight into modern economic theory. That's what's crazy. And he did a really good job of it. If you read the theory of social interactions or the his theory of marriage, there's a lot of math in it. But there's some very thoughtful things in it. And in particular, when he tries to apply it to the real world, to data and to generate hypotheses, he is extremely nuanced and, and subtle in his use of, of the tools. Now, I think he really believed that people were maximizers. I don't. It was hard for me to come to this realization that my advisor, I didn't agree with him. Maybe I'm not being fair to him. But I think he fundamentally believed not just he had a model of human behavior, but he was capturing what people actually do. Now, to be fair to him, he was aware that that is somewhat troubling. And he actually tried in a paper that I always thought was a throwaway, but actually I think probably meant a lot to him. He tried to show that the theory of demand would still hold even if people weren't rational and actually chose randomly. And it's a very, it's a cutesy yeah. kind of result. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. But anyway, to, yeah. to, enough Gary Becker. The point is, is that modern economics, he's, he's an incredible outlier, not in the application right. of economics to non-financial or non-commercial applications. Mm-hmm. He's an outlier because he actually tried to treat people as social animals. And most economists either don't find that methodologically appealing 
because the math gets really unpleasant. Or they just think, oh, that's just such a small thing. As right, one colleague of right, mine would say, yeah. look, we're self-interested. That's the end of it. There's nothing more to say. And w- what I think, there's two aspects in which we're not just self-interested. One is I think we have principles. I think we do have yeah. moral values and things that we privilege above and beyond our own personal well-being. And and the second thing is, is that we're self-interested, yes, about survival and many of the things you talked about. But we also care that we want to belong. Our social. We want to belong. We want to be part of something ideally transcendent, glorious. And if not, a a nice, good, a good street gang that makes me feel like I'm somebody. Those are our human impulses that I think are left out of economics in many ways for mostly methodological reasons. That's my claim. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have four responses because it's, it's such an interesting uh, uh, um, conversation here. Four responses to what you just said. But the first one is, um, this is probably a throwaway thought. Um, I, I, I'm quite allergic to this. You see this in philosophy, actually, where there's this sort of analytical tradition where you're only supposed to sort of study the, the latest and greatest, so to speak, uh, insights on an idea. So if you're studying on what is free will, then you're supposed to read the, the latest research, the most advanced research. And then there's this historical tradition, which is the tradition that I'm part of, which is you think that there is incredible value in, in the classics, in, in the great works of antiquity. That never, and you're supposed that never to in, leaked in, over into invest- economics, Jonathan. Sorry. Well, that, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. I, I, I was going to say, I think that this split between these two uh, and, and what disciplines follow what tells you a bit about what that discipline is. Yeah. For example, literature, obviously classics model, right? All of science, all of science, obviously analytical model, right? Just, just latest, greatest, no scientist is going to go study Newton. The fact that economics is does not abide by that classical model tells you that people conceive and people do conceive of it as a science or try to conceive of it as to, a science. Yes. However, as you know, for, for, for most of human history, political economy was a, was a subset of a philosophy, right? Yep. Uh, if you ask Smith what he was, he would say he would, he's a moral philosopher. Absolutely. Right. So, so something like that. And so uh, that's just a throwaway comment, but that's something I found interesting. Um, the second thing I, I want to say is, uh, you know, in the preface, I'm going through the phenomenology right now of Hegel. It's quite a perilous journey. If you got Gerardo's pen. Oh, that's a light read. Uh, and, and, and exactly. And he, he, he sort of, he critiques types of thinking in the preface, if not that activity itself. So for example, he critiques mathematical thinking while he doesn't critique mathematics. The mathematical thinking is applying quantity as the fundamental language to many things. And in a similar way, I, I have a great allergy to economic thinking, even though I'm very fascinated with economics as a discipline. So this sort of extending the boundaries, what, what, what your advisor seemingly did, the, the economics of marriage, the economics of, of crime, I, I'm very allergic to all that. And I can't help but call to mind Immanuel Kant in his uh, uh, Metaphysics of Morals, where he modeled, quote unquote, the marriage as a contract of two people of opposite sex to use each other's genitalia. <laughs> because, of course, Kant had such a contractual way of thinking that, that, that he modeled everything in that. And Hegel had a great response to this. He said that you're fundamentally misunderstanding 
what a marriage is. It's so much more than a transaction between two atomistic individuals who remain atomistic and alienated and distant. You, you bond with the other person. You choose who you become by choosing the person that you're going to spend the your time with for the rest of your life. Straight out of my book. And it's yeah. The, I'm a, it turns out I'm a Kantian. I didn't know that. I'm a Hegelian. Excuse or you're, me. You're Hegelian. You're, you're exactly there, there. You go. And and it's this type of allergy that that I have towards this economic thinking applied to these disciplines as well. And I think what what makes all of this Gerard stuff, if it's right extremely challenging for economics as it's structured right now is it's not just, you know, you have the sort of goods and services utility function, and then you have the uh, being utility function, and then you can just model it mathematically as well. But the, the, the social function, the being function fundamentally penetrates into how we value goods and services. Absolutely. How do you look at crypto 10 years ago, a coin was worth zero. Or, or like close to zero. Now it's worth you know twenty thousand dollars. I haven't checked in a long time. Yeah, why bother? How do you <laughs> right? How do you exactly? How do you fundamentally model something like that? And 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 that goes with USD as well. Well, you can't model it quantitatively. You have to uh, uh, investigate it qualitatively. Is my conjecture? I'll, I'll say. Can I say one more sure. thing? Sure. I know you want. To, can I say one more thing? Um, as I as I. Uh, sort of move up in the economic ladder, so to speak. I, I was a, I was an economic immigrant. I wouldn't have been able to afford school if I didn't get a full ride at Columbia. So, but I, as I've moved up in the economic ladder, it seems like when you go higher and higher, less and less is determined by economic uh, utility. So, if you're struggling for survival in, in, a, in a street cart, it's totally model that utility. If you're a multi-millionaire, multi-billionaire, trying to determine what company to build. Modeling off utility is going to be very, very difficult. As you get that, that, that is to say, once our core human ends are satisfied, and they're quite easy satisfied, right? Food, water, shelter. Most, most economic decision making, I, I think, actually comes from this social dimension that doesn't lend itself very easily to mathematical modeling. And the last thing I'll say is this I think as we become more and more materially prosperous, more and more of our economy is going to be driven by spirit. And less and less of it is going to be driven by appetite. That is to say, more and more of it is going to uh, approximate cryptocurrencies or people buying skins on World of Warcraft than it is me bartering three chickens for your duck because I, I'm on my last leg and my wife is going to die if I don't give her milk, something like that. Uh, all this is to say is that when you have all three uh, parts of the human soul, so to speak, in view, I, I think that economic, the logic of economics in the 21st century, as we become more and more technologically advanced, is going to shift away from this appetitive model and more and more, even if, if it, even if it, even though it is already to a great degree, but it's going to shift more and more after. And I think we're already in a somewhat post-scarcity world in, in, in some sense. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that's why, uh, you know, to use an obvious example, Brexit, uh, Seemingly irrational, oh, great example, yes. right? Seemingly irrational. P people voting against their. Now, I think it's really complicated on every dimension of this problem. But I'm going to give you the. Totally. I'm giving the caricatured version. The caricatured version is these 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 people from England who voted to 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 leave the European Union. They they were sh they were cutting up their nose despite their face. That's irrational. Um, they're going to be poorer now. And, and how's that going to help? That, that They obviously didn't understand the economics of what they were doing. And I look at it very differently now. I, I might have said that 
some version of that in the past, but I, I look at it very differently. I say, I'm going to assume actually that they do know the economics. They just care about something more than just about money. National sovereignty, National sovereignty right? self-identity. Their identity right? is, a, is an English a person, of, a, a citizen of England. And That's we see right, this yeah. raising its head everywhere around the world. It's not uh, a British thing. It's not an American thing. It's in a lot of different places. People obviously have their sense of self is not unimportant. Um, I don't know whether that's Girardi or not. It seems to be somewhat somewhat related. I, I want to come back to your earlier critique of economics, though, which is again straight out of uh, some past econ talks, and it's it's also in my book uh, Wild Problems, which is that you talked about how being the pleasure or sense of self, the the value I get from that, gets tangled up in my utility, and vice versa. Now. The utilitarian will say, and this is a common response to, to my argument, oh, I'll just put it all in utility. You know, I'll get utility from who I am. I'll get utility from my sense of self. And it's true, you can cram it in. I argue that it's just not that helpful after a while. And the, certainly it's not helpful mathematically. But, you know, this critique really comes from L.A. Paul, the, the philosopher, and, and her vampire problem. The vampire problem is, mm. I'm not a vampire. All the vampires I know are really happy. But it kind of is disgusting, uh, you know, drinking blood. and But they seem really happy, so um, maybe I'll try it. But not all of them, maybe. But a lot of them. It works out pretty well for them. But will it work out well for me? I'm not so sure. And once I make the leap, I can't go back. And by making the leap, by choosing to become a vampire, by getting married, just to make a really horrible analogy, which she does and I do too. But to make that leap is to say, I'm changing my preference function. So the whole right. idea of economics, utility where, changes, where, right? That utility, the 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 function itself, right? What gives? Yeah, exactly. What makes my heart sing is now suddenly different. So if that's true, what's the definition Precisely. of rationality? The essence of the economist model of human behavior is that I have these fixed preferences and I try to satisfy them as much as I can. Now, having said all that, Jonathan. I have to say that you know, it's really easy to take pot shots at economics and say, oh, it's got these problems. People aren't so rational. People care about other things. Uh, the fundamental idea of economics still applies in lots of places, as you alluded to earlier, not just the person with the street cart. Uh, and understanding those forces, I think, often is um, it's very helpful. But as you point out, mm -hmm. as you get higher and higher in the economic stratosphere, what floats your boat is now very different. And it's not just, yeah. uh, oh, I have more refined preferences. They're, 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 it's radically different. The things that I care right. about yeah. change. And um, that, that's the modern world. That's fundamentally right. And I have a few responses to that as well. The, the one that I'll say is this fundamentally changing of the preference function. That is why I introduced mimesis, not as, as a simple imitation, but as an imitation of values. Right. This is that—that that is the normative authority that fundamentally changes what you value. Yeah. Right. Again, crypto from going to zero, from being this like god godlike thing that's going to save all of us. The, the second thing I'll say is that I actually think that you actually gave a a, pr a pretty good. Uh, I, I know you didn't intend it that way, but I think a really good pushback against this idea that only the top echelons are are motivated by by spirit, because as we know, Brexit is a. Uh, a nationwide movement. A lot of its supporters are much more grassroots, Poor. and and Trump was also more grassroots Poor as well, people. right? So not richer people, exactly. So so so. And the last thing I'll say um, before I, I go to an example is, um, I, I do think that it 
economics tools are, are very important to study. I, I myself try to try to study uh, economics. Uh, I, I hold it secondary to philosophy, but that's another conversation. Um, and my point here is to know when to use what. Because, and I think you'll agree here, especially with the uh, economics, we're cramming everything into utility. They try to model everything by, by this utility maximizing creature. And there are fundamentally domains and time periods and, and, and choices in your life that can't, that don't abide by this economic logic. So I think economics is one tool belt amongst many. And when you model actors, rational utility maximizing actors, and there are transactions like that, that's what you should model it with. But know that there's this other part of the soul that's been obscured by modernity that has great pull and force that if you don't properly model it, you're going to invite disaster. And I'll give you an example since you brought up Brexit. And this is one I brought up in my uh, in my lecture series as well. So I, I obviously grew up in China and I moved uh, to, to Canada at quite a young age. And the dominant view of economic liberalization of China in the, 20, in the 2000s, certainly in the 90s, if you remember, was that it was going to harmonize China with with the West? I, right? I just have to and, I just have to interrupt because one of the mo- one of my favorite moments in Econ Talk I think was in two thousand and seven about a year into the program when I claimed to right. br- get the guest Bruce Wayne to Mesquita that increased trade with would with China would lead to um, would lead to harmony it would lead to a, a, a shared interests and. Uh, and it would lead to the democratization of China and I'll never forget this because it was. Bruce, a very powerful thinker. He looked. He looked at me. I think we did it face to face, and he said, "And and what would the evidence for that theory be?" <laughs> and I thought, "Oh, I guess I don't have any. It's just uh, I don't know a right. prior." Well, but a lot of people made yeah. the claim. I was one uh, of them. Uh, well, it was, was the dominant <laughs> yeah. claim. It was the dominant <laughs> claim, and and the reason that people made this claim, I think, is twofold. Um, one fold is that the economic liberalization will increase, like media liberalization, like Hollywood's penetration to China, and they would converge the values Culturally. between the, the, the Chinese. And exactly, you know, the idea goes something like, you know, when the Chinese want to send their kids into Ivy Leagues, and if, when they watch the NBA, and they're going to share similar values with us, and uh, we're going to be harmonized. The second one, and this is the economic. This is the, really the thrust of the argument is that the introduction of China as a powerful actor in the world economy would both lift the boats of the Chinese, which it did, and it would also lift the boats of the Americans through cheaper goods, which it did. On average. However, Gerard actually wrote his final book, final major work in 2007. It's called Battling to the End, where at the height of Sino-American optimism, he predicted that a conflict would, would occur between China and the U.S., the very conflict that we're seeing rolling out now. And, and, and even more surprisingly, he predicted that conflict would come at the very means by which other people thought would establish peace through trade. And he said something like, uh, this almost verbatim, he said something like, um, from that perspective, we can fear that a major trade war uh, will occur between China and the U.S. in the coming decades. I'll give you the quote after, but he literally said that uh, in, in 2007, which, of course, happened in, in, the, in the late 2010s and early 2020s. And Gerard's reason for why those two intuitions are wrong is, first, as humans, again, we, care, we, we do care about our absolute increase in goods, but more often than not, we care about the relative, our relative position. So his claim was that Americans would, would be less happy because they would feel more threatened by China's rise and, and less, they would be less joyful about their absolute increase in goods. And conversely, the Chinese wouldn't be happy that they're absolutely better, but because their gap has closed down, that the Americans seem 
even closer to reach. And, and, and they would, they, they would almost be more jealous because they were closer and not less jealous. Right. And, and in my own life, I'm much more jealous of a 25 year old entrepreneur who's doing slightly better than me than the billionaire, in my, the billionaires in my lives. They're too distant from me. Right. And, uh, you, you know, uh, and on the second point, Gerard does not think a shared value system necessarily means harmony because it also increases the amount of competition um, that, the, that the two nations would, would, would enter into. And, and, and a similar self-conception for Gerard, and this is his image of the warring twin, uh, would actually lead potentially to conflict. And so lest our, our, our audience think that, you know, Professor Rust and, and I are just talking about theoretical things that don't have to do with, with really important, possibly apocalyptic events in the world. Economic thinking, I think, is responsible for a whole, whole host of, of, uh, you know, of terrible decisions on both a global, uh, a more, more uh, national, as well as on a micro individual level. I'm not sure I agree with that. It's very provocative. Uh, I, I think it is, to be fair, a little bit more uh, sympathetic to my 2007 self. In, right. in general, um, m- most economists believe, perhaps incorrectly, uh, that trade reduces conflict on average, in, is a force for good. And right, the argument right. there, there's a lot of empirical evidence on it, doesn't mean it's right, but people have tried to study this. The argument is that, uh, you know, we're in the same boat. If I'm trading with you, this is the, the, yeah. the argument that for this China Harmony story. Uh, so right. I don't really, I, 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 it's hard for me to accept Gerard's argument that because we're closer together, we're going to be more in conflict. I would argue that the part that most people ignored was the sense of national autonomy and pride that that people would would worry and and feel strongly about, and that if yes. that weren't there, um, and if there weren't a history, say, of the West uh, imperializing uh, the East in, in in many previous centuries, maybe that wouldn't have. I'm thinking now of the British, the Opium Wars. Um, I. I I suspect that history is maybe more important than the kind of competition that Gerard is yes. talking about. But I, it's an interesting question. I have no idea. Yeah, maybe to qualify what, what, what I just said there, I think we can perhaps interpret Gerard uh, as saying something like, to think that trade itself is the panacea yeah. to, to global peace is, is way too naive yeah, because enough. trade itself introduces both multiple avenues of, of competition that can incite violence itself or um, trade can, um, yeah, yeah, I'll, 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 just, I'll just leave it, leave it like that. But yeah, but I, I, I don't fully agree with the position I just forwarded right there as well. I'm, I'm trying to articulate Gerard's sort of, uh, yeah. Gerard's sort of intuitions yeah. here. Uh, my guest today has been Jonathan B. He's got a seven-part series. And uh, as interesting as I, I hope listeners found today's conversation. His online versions of of, of these topics are uh, quite provocative, intense, and uh, we will link to them. So, Jonathan, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks so much for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.